So we're on our way to the table this morning. But first I would like for us to remember for a moment where we've been. Because we certainly live in a time of disorientation. And I think it's helpful to remember the ways that God has spoken to us in the past as a reminder, as a way to remember God's faithfulness in the present. And so if we were to take a little trip back, we're not going to spend too long with this, but uh, if we were to go back about a year and a half, I want, to, I want us to remember the ways that God has opened his word to us in the time since, because I think these things have been sort of building on one another. And maybe you'll remember as you hear, oh yeah, I, I remember that. Or maybe you'll say, did we actually talk about that? <laughs> Either way, it's good to be reminded uh, of the story. And that's where we started. Uh, we began about a year and a half ago looking at the transcendent story that includes all of our stories. We continue to hit that refrain time to time. And we used um, N.T. Wright, he's an Anglican bishop, we used his sort of five-fold outline of the, of the Christian Bible and the scriptures to understand that. Anybody remember we begin with the story of the scriptures, creation and the fall? So God makes everything good, creates heavens and the earth, and puts humanity in this central location, uh, takes the earth, the dust of the ground, and breathes into it the air of the heaven, the breath of God, and makes a living creature who reflects God's image, who is meant to be a mediator of sorts uh, between God and the creation, playing sort of a, a mediating and priestly role there. And of course, humanity falls, turns away from God, and seeks to live in the creation, not as a means of communion with God, but as something that we can now take and grab and own and grasp after for ourselves. And you can see how things splinter apart after that. Um, so the creation and fall is the first stage. And then, even though we turned from God, God didn't turn from us, right? He, he made a series of promises, covenants uh, with human beings, beginning with Adam and Eve, and then with Noah, and then with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then with Moses atop the mountain, and then with David as he sat upon the throne of Israel. One promised to him a descendant who would sit upon the throne of Israel forever. So a series of, of covenant promises that God makes, that he is actually setting things right in such a way that honors our freedom, but also moves uh, towards this comprehensive uh, love that reveals to us the being of God and who he is in his nature. And so we've got the creation, the fall, we've got the covenants, and then all of this leads us ultimately to Jesus Christ, right? He's the one who fulfills all of those promises. He's the one who clarifies what they meant in the first place. And so Jesus, in his life and death and ministry, uh, in his resurrection and in his, in his ascension, reveals to us who God is, uh, obtains salvation for us, and opens up now the kingdom of heaven to all who believe. So Jesus is that third uh, major section. And then the time of the Spirit. Jesus ascends and sends the Spirit so that he might live in our hearts so that you all are temples of God. But he's also building us together in the Spirit in such a way that He's building us up into a temple, a living place, a dwelling place for the Lord. Uh, so we live in this time, this time of the church, this time of life in the spirit. And we are looking forward to uh, the parousia, the eschaton, the, the, the last things, uh, Christ's return, the final judgment, his setting right of all that is. So that there are no more tears anymore, no crying or, or death nor pain anymore. It's good to remember that, as we have already mentioned some who are certainly uh, grieving and hurting today. Um, so that was sort of the outline, the, the, the five big uh, overarching uh, 
points, touchstones, uh, in the transcendent story that includes now all of our stories. This story is for you. It's a, it's a story for you to be a part of. Uh, then we, we shifted, and we noticed that the, the central part of that story, the, the, the part that everything before it looked forward to and everything after it looked back upon was the story of Jesus. And so we went to the Gospel of Mark, and we walked all the way through that Gospel and traced out the story of Jesus, beginning with his baptism in the Jordan River, his anointing by the Spirit, his uh, trip into the wilderness. There's that theme again. His trip into the wilderness where he did uh, battle with, with the devil. Um, his life, his, his testifying of the kingdom, his bringing healing to folks and opening up what it means, the content of the kingdom, to people who had ears to hear. Um, but some didn't, and so he was condemned and sent to a cross and buried in a tomb. But then he rose again. So this was, this was that next big section. We've got the whole big picture, and then we focused in on Christ. And then we decided, well, let's go back to the Old Testament. And we spent a long time with David. Remember this, one of the kings, sort of the preeminent king of Israel in its history, and um, one to whom that promise was, was made, that one day one of his descendants, Jesus, would sit upon the throne of Israel forever. And we saw David, um, as, as the old prophet Samuel strode into town, looking among his brothers for a king, one to anoint king of Israel. And he passed on each of them and said, this isn't the one. And he said, do you have no more sons? And they went and brought David in, the youngest of them, ruddy-faced. He'd been out keeping the sheep. And right there, the prophet Samuel anointed him king of Israel. Just an ordinary kid, just an ordinary kid ordinary person, just like you and me, just going about his chores for the day. And God calls him a shepherd king. Does that sound familiar? A shepherd king over Israel. Of course, this kid shows up in the courts of Saul, a giant of a man stood head and shoulders above his countrymen. And then he gazes outside the, the, uh, uh, the palace and sees another giant, a Philistine giant, Goliath, who comes with all the armies of the Philistines and stands staring and leering and taunting the armies of Israel. No one goes out to fight. And David says, we've got the Lord on our side. I'll go. And he turns down all of Saul's heavy armor. And he goes down to a brook and takes out five smooth stones and with nothing but a sling and a bit of agility and the Lord's power. He overcomes the giant. Uh, Saul isn't pleased with the adoration he receives. And so David is driven out where? Into the wilderness again, where he grows and develops. It's the place of his maturation. It's the place where he comes to lead, uh, be a leader of, of people. And so eventually he is uh, um, crowned king of Israel. He moves the palace to Jerusalem. He moves the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. It's the central religious place now for, um, for all the country. It's also the place where he commits his great sin, or his most notable series of sins. And it's also the place where he pins that great psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, which has found its way and is just a standard prayer in our worship now. So that was David, an ordinary kid who God does something extraordinary with, a, a, a shepherd boy who becomes a king, a, a great sinner, but also a great saint. And it shows how God wants to do all, all of those things with each of us. But we also have the capacity to live into that uh, kingly role which we were given at the very beginning of creation. And God is restoring that to us through Jesus. From there, uh, from that Old Testament place, it was Christmas time, so we moved through Advent and Christmas, and then we began a series on life together. 
And we began with that, that, uh, that psalm, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down onto the beard, running down onto the beard of Aaron, running down onto the collars of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. There in life together God has commanded the blessing life forevermore. The forever kind of life that we receive in Jesus. And if there's ever, you know, it's not nice to say told you so. And it's not really me saying it, it's the scriptures. But I mean, if, if we can't say told you so right now, when we aren't able to live in unity in the ways that we're familiar, in the ways that are normal, um, man, man. Just yesterday, Leslie said, I miss church, by which she meant all of you, by which she meant worship, by which she meant uh, life with God and God's people. Do you not, does your heart not long for some kind of return uh, to that kind of together sort of life? Uh, then we actually picked a passage from Ephesians and noted how God is basing with the cornerstone of Jesus and the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, building us all up together into a dwelling place for the Lord. That's what life together looks like. Um, but then we, we narrowed it down a little more. And we, we decided that life together begins alone. You remember that line? Life together begins alone. And so we sorted through a few Christian disciplines. Not This wasn't exhaustive. We just had six. Three disciplines of abstention, abstaining from certain things. And then three disciplines for engagement. Solitude. Silence and fasting, the disciplines of abstention. And then study, worship, and celebration were the disciplines of engagement. Isn't it cool that celebration is a discipline of the Christian life? Uh, that's what we do here, isn't it? We come to the table, we celebrate the risen Lord and his life with us. Um, and about that time, pandemic struck. And because we wanted to figure out how to, how to journey through this time well we turn to the central portion of Luke's gospel, this travel narrative that connected home with victory, uh, which was the difficult way. There's the theme again of, of wilderness wandering, the place where we mature, the place where we can grow, the place where we can develop in ways that um, we can't without that trial and hardship. And so even though pandemic is not good, it is bad. God can always bring good even out of difficult. And, and, and bad things. Which brings us to this morning, where this transition, what, what are we going to do now? Uh, we've, we've looked at kind of the big picture story, we've no, narrowed in on Jesus, we've looked at the Old Testament king, of uh, the, sort of the preeminent king of Israel's history. We've talked a little bit about life together, and we figured out, okay, how are we going to begin to orient ourselves during this disorienting time? This morning we're moving to Ephesians. It is a New Testament letter, a letter of Paul. You'll notice that within that, there, we haven't talked about any letters in the New Testament. And Paul has written most of the New Testament, which means that would be a really good kind of big section for us to look at. Now, Ephesians is interesting because it's, it's, the, it's the one letter in the New Testament that wasn't written by Paul to a church in conflict or in controversy um, or in confusion. And because of that, Paul draws in all these different, is able to draw in all these different themes in the letters that he's written, but not in a polemical way, not in an argumentative way, in a way that's saying, no, that, that's a wrong interpretation. Here's, here's where you need to be redirected. No, this is just, this letter is, is incredibly beautiful. And it gives to us a picture of the church um, 
and, and of what uh, God is doing in us through the church, especially during this, what, like this fourth stage of the story. And so we're going to be spending some time with it. We can roughly divide this into two big sections. The first three chapters have to do with the gospel, have to do with the privileges of the Christian life. Like what, what is it? What are the blessings that we receive when we come to know Christ? And then the next three chapters, the last three chapters, have to do with, okay, what kind of responsibility do we have? Uh, what does this mean practically? How does this work its way into our lives in tangible ways, uh, in ways that change the structure of our being and our doing? Um, and so this morning, chapter one, first three verses. It's brief, it's quick. Um, but hopefully you've remembered where God has been at work in our lives and the ways he's been speaking to us in such a way that now we're able to look forward to what God might continue to do and how he might continue to build upon the foundation that has been laid in Christ and the prophets so that we might become a dwell- so that you might become a dwelling place for God. So here it is. Listen carefully, listen well. Ephesians chapter 1. Um, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Two, the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So who's it from? Who's it to? And what does he basically want us to know at the very outset? Um, It's from Paul. Immediately when you hear Paul, you're thrown into this uh, life that no one could have guessed. Uh, Here's Paul, this brilliant man, this incredibly faithful man who becomes a Pharisee, who studies under Gamaliel, one of the preeminent, if not the preeminent, rabbis of the day. Uh, This man who uh, is so strictly adherent to the Torah, the law of God, that he can say in some place that in terms of the outward keeping of the law, he is blameless. He's keeping everything. And he doesn't like it when people steer people away from what God's word says. Now he's working with the Old Testament at this point, right? So when Christians appear on the scene, he understands them to be a heretical sect that needs to be put down. And by put down, I mean like literally put down, like put to death. And so Paul, this Pharisee of Pharisees, this one who's, I mean, he's like, Harvard educated. He's got the bloodlines. He's got, um, the, in terms of the tribe of Israel that he's from, all of these things. I mean, he's got his resume is pristine. Uh, he's a leader. He's memorized the Old Testament, as most would have done in that time in his position. Um, and he likes to go to executions of Christians. And he likes to hold the, hold the cloaks and the coats of those who are preparing to stone these Christians who are speaking about Jesus, so that they can, you know, get their arm loosened up a little better and really let go with those rocks. Paul, that's how it starts. That Paul, that Paul, who also on his road on the road to Damascus had this incredible conversion experience in which, lo and behold, he met Jesus Christ, the ascended Lord who struck him blind physically with a light so bright he could see for days, but in so doing also opened up the eyes of his heart so that he could know the truth of who Jesus was. And Jesus asked Saul a question 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I want you to notice that in particular because do you... Saul's like, when was I persecuting you, Jesus? You died a while back. Saul has been persecuting Christians. Do you see how wrapped up the life of Jesus is in your life such that if someone were to persecute you, Jesus could go to that person and ask them, why are you persecuting me? Do you see how God has made you one with his son? That was the question. Paul, that Paul, who lost everything. It's the closest sort of corollary that I can imagine is a present-day Muslim who converts to Christianity. When that happens today, they lose everything. Like they have to get, I mean, it's like we can become Christian and not really feel like we've lost a whole lot. They lose everything. Um, their family kicks them out. Their friends don't do anything with them anymore. Most often they would lose their jobs. End up outside, kicked out of their homes, out on the street. They lose everything to follow Jesus. Paul has lost everything. Everything that had been built up for so long, he's, he's now a Christian. That Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he's writing this letter to a church. And he's writing it not under his own will, but under the will of God. Seems like that guy might have something to say I would want to hear. Right? He gave up everything. He's met Jesus in this powerful way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Two, two, who, who's it two? To the to the saints who are in Ephesus, to the saints, to, the, to those who are holy, to those which, mean, which certainly has that um, implicit meaning of moral righteousness, but even more fundamentally means those set apart, the holy ones, those who are set apart by God for a particular task. Paul, one who's been set apart by God for a particular task, writes to those Christians who are in Christ and have been set apart for a particular task, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, if you'll look back at some of the earliest copies of this letter that we have, texts, um, some of the earliest ones don't include Ephesians. It doesn't say to the saints who are in Ephesus. And so uh, scholars believe that this letter was originally a cyclical letter. So it was intended to be sent to all these different churches in Asia, Asia Minor. And so you would get a copy, we would get a copy of this letter and we'd read it and we'd copy it ourselves and, and perhaps even write in on the blank the name of our church. And then we would send the original on or, or, or send uh, another copy on to the next place. So they could also have this testimony from the Apostle Paul. So maybe we could say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Newland, to those who are set apart by God for particular tasks, for particular ministry, to the saints who are in Newland, you say, I'm not a saint. I can't, be, I can't, I, I wouldn't want to claim that. We're certainly called to be one. And sort of our, the, the first way that we imagine that, you're certainly called to be one. To be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect, but you are one even now. The next line clarifies who are faithful in Christ Jesus, not apart from Christ Jesus, but you are a saint in Christ Jesus. And you've been called forth for a particular task. You've been set aside for a particular work. And we just got a letter from Paul. If we're going to do this work, do you think this letter might be helpful to us? I think it might. What does Paul want us to know? Just, okay, Roman letter. It was a, from Paul, 
to Ephesus greetings. Paul has messed with this greeting line just a little bit and often says similar things. Uh, grace and peace. Grace to you and peace. Grace and peace. That's, what, that's how he wants to start the letter. That's, maybe that's what you need to hear this morning as we enter in, as we begin to pick up from where we've been and move to where, we're, where God is taking us. Grace and peace. What is grace? Grace is what we see God revealing to us in the life of Jesus in the incarnation and in everything that we've been tracing out through Luke's gospel, his compassion for us, the way he moves towards our suffering, moves towards our struggle with a hand uh, full of healing, a mouth full of blessing and a life and then a death and then a resurrection full of world transformation. That's where we see grace. We see grace in the giving of the spirit. We see grace as we come to the table and Jesus says, hey, My word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of joint and marrow. Yes, it will work its way into you. But I'm also going to give you something tangible. So you can actually just say, I don't know if I can grasp all of it. It's too big for me. Jesus says, here's my body and my blood. Receive it. Grace. Ultimately, Grace is your being joined to the life of God. Yes, it's forgiveness. Yes, it's the cross. Yes, it's the work of Christ. But that work was for a purpose. And that purpose is that you would be made one, that you would be joined into the very life of God. It's an ontological reality. It's, it has to do with your being, like who you are, your essence. That is being made one with God. The, the classic line is G, God and Jesus has become what we are, human being, so that we, by God's grace, might become what He is, that we might share in God's own essence and life. That sort of blows your mind, right? Okay, we're going to work with that moving forward. Paul has some things to say about it. But he also says peace. Peace, not as in like we're not fighting. Not, that, not just that kind of peace, but peace as in like shalom. That Old Testament, that Hebrew word that has to do with complete and total peace between you and God. Peace in your heart. Peace in your heart that so fills you that it begins to spill out into the lives of those around you, into the lives of your family, into the lives of your friendships, into the lives of those who are with you in your work. Um, and not just it's not just about you, actually, shalom, peace. It's about all of those people having complete and total peace in their lives and until society, until culture is a place of complete and total peace. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbors, yourself. This sense of shalom and peace is, is that everywhere. Could you imagine? Paul, the apostle Paul, writes you a letter. And he says, grace, to be united to the life of God and peace, total and comprehensive peace everywhere in everyone with everything. I'm talking about big things here. And it's not something you manufacture. It's from God our Father. Abba, Dad. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who invites us to come to this table. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.